I'm we told Bill we do a cool 45 and we just did three of them. So that's uh <laughs> we really did something. The New Brunswick Archaeology Podcast featuring your hosts, Gabe Ryan and Ken Holyoke. Welcome back to the New Brunswick Archaeology Podcast. I'm Gabe Reinick, and I am joined, as always, in Lethbridge, Alberta by Ken Holyoke. And this is our first ever special guest program. And we are joined this week for a special program with Bill Farley. Uh, Bill Farley is an associate professor of anthropology at Southern Connecticut State University. He was educated at uh, UMass Boston. That's the Harvard of Southie and the <laughs> University of Connecticut. He's an ongoing field research program in Southern New England historical archaeology, and his papers have appeared in such journals as American Antiquity, Historical Archaeology, and Northeast Historical Archaeology, of which he is now the editor. Um, in addition yeah. to being a good friend, it's in that role that he's joining us today. Um, he's also active, and you might know him from this, in using video games to teach about archaeology, so make sure you check out his YouTube channel, which is at Archaeology. Tube. And before we get to our discussion with Bill Farley today, which is about publishing and archaeology, we'd like to thank our sponsor. That's the Association of Professional Archaeologists of New Brunswick. They sponsor us uh, every week or every fortnight, depending on whether we have a special episode or we're just on our regularly scheduled programming. And remember to listen for the aspirated yeses. Each one of the aspirated yeses is brought to you by the Association of Professional Archaeologists of New Brunswick. So we still don't have a name for this podcast. And and Ken, if someone were to have a better name for this podcast, where would they email that to? That is uh, New Brunswick Archaeology at gmail.com. And uh, we do have some listener mail. So while you read off this week's prize, I'm going to pull up our listener mail. Oh, excellent. Um, And but Ken, before you do that, do you know what's happening on March 24th? March 24th? I don't know if I do. It's the re-release of Resident Evil 4. And so if you're the one to send in a winning new game for this podcast, you'll win an evening of playing that game, that very game with the Archeo Gamer. That's the Archeo Gamer, one William T. Farley. And of course, the special thing about that is that Bill, because of his prowess as an Archeo Gamer, knows the various techniques to really up your game. So uh, even in fact, not everybody knows this, but Bill's YouTube channel, uh, every time he crests 60,000 viewers he gets the special pre-release cheat codes so bill can get you unlimited mana hit points whatever it might be that you need um but he'll be pairing that with a traditional platter of italian antipasto and uh, predatory del barbaresco 2017 and that's from the italian piedmont very delicious red wine and the game uh, he's happy to play on your system uh, so whatever system uh, of your choice but I, it has to be playstation 4 5 Windows or Xbox Series XS, which is what the uh, March 24th re-release is available on. You, so you have to fly me in to New Brunswick though for the evening. So I'm sorry. That's good. so. Oh that's, no, we fly the listener to you. You're in New Haven. That's where <laughs> that's where the antipasto is. That's true. That's very true. Uh, so my middle initial is not T. That's actually not true. And any viewers who happen to know what that T stands for. Uh, you'll also win a free copy, which is true. I'm pretty sure that might only be Megan Willison, though, so we have to check uh, with with her uh, former lab mate of Gabe and I. Gabe yeah, and I don't I know if Megan listens, but you got 
you 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 guys have a real like you got a real kind of a like a 90s car talk vibe going here which i love i appreciate that (laughs) (laughs) but yeah we 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 just wait till you hear our listener mail bill (laughs) this is this is also the uh uh this episode is is the first of um gabe mentioned that this is going to be the first of a few special episodes that we have coming up and we're going to uh, we're going to be calling these intrusive features, um, uh, playing on the uh, the archaeological uh, uh, puns that we have going here, and 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 in that vein, actually, our listener uh, mail this week um, from I think could be could be said as probably one of our top followers, uh, uh, David W. Black, um, emailed and provided us with a couple of uh, potential names for the podcast to consider: uh, revisionist prehistory, um, alluding to. Uh, um, uh, revisionist Gladwell, history right? by uh why can't i think of his name malcolm, malcolm gladwell, gladwell. Yeah, yeah yeah gladwell yeah, yeah. and uh beyond the pointy bits mm-hmm. um those, so those are good. Uh, we can we can consider those alongside some of the ones that uh uh carolyn had suggested uh two sharp two sharp spades um and uh but we're uh, none of these have have cleared the competition threshold yet i i think mm-hmm. that's uh the the uh, the jury's still out yeah, I mean, we we pass this on to our board of trustees who handles it, and we, we yeah. just we just we just handle this. But so the reason that uh, how are you, Bill? We haven't talked in a while. I'm think? good. I'm good. I, I good. you all should probably know Gabe and I go uh, back a long way uh, to, uh, to as uh, office mates and lab mates at uh, at the 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 Harvard of Northern of Connecticut. harvard harvard of northern connecticut the university of connecticut (laughs) yeah uh... so (laughs) so uh so the other thing though that we have in common is that um or that that bill and i have in common and that ken and i have in common i'm the hinge to this is that we've all published together in various formations so uh we've all written together Mm -hmm. um which is exciting and that uh, gets the theme uh, of this week's podcast so for the first half we're going to talk about publishing in general, which is basically like try to give the listener who may not be super familiar with how publishing in archaeology works, a sense of uh, how it does. And then the second half is going to be advice, especially from Bill, about uh, how to publish your first paper. And that's because he is the editor. How long have you been the editor of Kaniha? Interestingly, about a little less than a year, and actually it's been a bit of a transitionary year. I've been sort of sharing the job with the uh, previous editor, which has actually been great because I've gotten to do some sort of mentorship with her and learn learn from her on the job because it's actually quite quite a complicated job. It's got a lot of moving parts uh, and a lot to learn. So I'm, I'm, I'm glad to get a chance to share some of that knowledge I've picked up. Well, we appreciate you sharing it. So I thought we'd just start off with... Um... Why is it that archaeologists should should publish their work? Are archaeologists obligated to publish their work? Um, what do you what? How would you gentlemen respond to that question? Well, I don't know. Should I start us off as I didn't realize I was the first guest ever? I, what a what an honor! I'm really I'm really pleased to be to be there. Uh, I, and if you don't you know, screw it up, there'll be other guests. Uh, <laughs> I, I'm you probably wouldn't be surprised to hear, considering the my roles that Gabe was laying out there. But uh, I I personally think publishing is uh, a, certainly an ethical responsibility of archaeologists or any scholars, any 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 professionals, um, especially ones who are working with the sort of data that we do, which is often 
kind of use it or lose the data, right? We, we, just, we talk all the time about destructive science. We destroy sites as we excavate them. In some ways we are, um, when we do excavation, we do archeology, span we are uh, taking data out of the earth that can't be put back, right? And somebody can't go and do it later. So the only way we can really, I think, do that fully ethically is if we are reporting that information in some way. But I would say that I have a pretty broad definition of what publishing means. So obviously, I've got this foot in sort of traditional peer review publishing. And I do think that that's important. It's an important part of the story. But I also think there's other ways and equally and maybe sometimes more important ways of quote unquote publishing. So doing that kind of public archaeology, finding other ways to present that information, whether that be public reports or or uh, publishing in popular um, publications like magazines or you know uh, making TikToks or or YouTube videos or uh, um, you know uh, microblogging or whatever it is blogging in a traditional sense all those are ways that we can also present information out to the public and maybe even reach different sorts of communities than just the academic community that traditional peer-reviewed publishing gets to uh, so so that's that's a, that's sort of my take on it yeah and yeah it was I like the you kicked it off with the ethical responsibility. And I think that we all kind of sign off on this as, as, as kind of an imperative, but it's also too, like Gabe and I talk about this a lot. The, um, a lot of what we do is funded publicly or with, with public funds in some way, shape or form. And so it's sort of this duty to give back, like, you know, kind of uh, value for dollars, basically that people are, are, we're uh, enabled to do this work, uh, which is, you know, actually pretty fun. And, and, uh, um, that kind of comes off of uh, the the kindness of other people, basically at the end of the day, and so being able to give back at least some of that, and um, through uh, through both publications, which I think are a little bit more for us and our peers, um, and sort of the peer review process, um, and uh, and this public uh, publicly accessible stuff, including the New Brunswick Archaeology Podcast, <laughs> indeed, and uh, and so and I, I think that's a really good point is that that. Uh, I mean, all three of us are employed by public institutions. We all spend public grant money and we've all worked in CRM and CRM involves enormous amounts of the public's money. And I think the public is, is justified in, in making sure that they get some sense about learning about the past from that and learning about what archaeologists do. Um, so we might as well just, just jump right into this, though. So um, about what kind of different, you mentioned all these different kinds of publications. And I was wondering if we could unpack that a little bit. Do you like, do you like that, Phil? Unpack. That's just like we're in the, in that theory seminar we took together yeah, again. Absolutely. I love that. Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, um, but so you mentioned the peer reviewed literature. Uh, so, so what, what does that mean? This is a good, this is a great starting point. Like what you hear that term out there a lot. And I hear this, you know, even reading in, in, in when we're talking about sort of public health or, or this word, this term gets thrown around like, oh, it's that peer reviewed research. It's almost thrown around as a kind of a, a sort of, uh, it's got this weight to it. All the peer review process really is, is at, it's, it's the names right on the tin. It means that the paper, uh, your, your piece of writing that you've put together has been reviewed by your peers, which in this case means other scholars. So, so the way this normally works in the case of journal editing is you submit your paper to a journal, 
you'll know ahead of time whether it's a, a peer-reviewed journal. It'll be somewhere in their description on their website. It'll tell you exactly what happens to your paper after you submit it there. Uh, and in a peer-reviewed situation, the editor will send it out to usually three, but some number of, of uh, other scholars who usually have some kind of specialization in something you're talking about in the paper. Usually, hopefully in total between those different reviewers, you're capturing all the different elements, the methods of the paper, the theory of the paper, the regional or time period uh, focus, whatever it might be. Uh, and then those reviewers read it, give back their honest opinions, their thoughts, uh, and then give advice back to the editor about whether the paper should be published or not, whether it should be rejected, accepted, whether it needs edits, should it have additional citations added, whatever, anything that the reviewers think should be added. Uh, and then the editor gives it back to the author with those comments and uh, and typically will either reject the paper or will ask them to implement those comments and then resubmit it uh, and then ultimately get it published. So really, it's it's um it's got all this kind of pub this uh, this scholarly cachet, this idea of peer review. But all it really is is an opportunity for other um, knowledgeable people to get a set of eyes on it and give you advice to make the paper better. Um, there is, you know, nastiness in the old kind of joke meme about a reviewer number two writing terrible, horrible things. And that does, does happen. And so you should take, you should always take those reviews with, with um, some criticism. You know, they, there are other human beings who are reviewing them. And they may say things that are unreasonable or ask you to do things that are maybe not that good. But most of the time, it's uh, it, in, in total will make the paper better and will make it stronger uh, before it's finally published. Gabe, are you yeah. familiar with reviewer number two? I, I am, although the one I got today was actually reviewer number one. Oh, uh, twist. Who, yeah, it was it was interesting. I I'd never gotten um a frowny face as a as a comment before, but but it was a it was a new take. It was still in red pen though, so it was done. It was in red pen. Yeah, yeah. So that really, that really when your reviewers start using emoji, you're in trouble in general. I think that's yeah. a good sign. Well, there's one that could have been even worse, but that I didn't see that one on the sketched in the in the marginalia. So, so in that context, Bill, you're you you so you're outlining the situation where, so um, I want to submit a paper to Northeast Historical Anthropology. I send it to you. You're the editor. Um, you send it to somebody who has either a regional specialization or technical specialization in that, um, who's professional archaeologist. What is your role as the editor in that context? That's a really good question, and and that's been a big learning curve for me actually in this last year because I don't think I'd know if I fully understood that. So the, hopefully we can we can brush some of the uh, the myths about this. The editor is so I I've started to think of the role as almost kind of a shepherding role. The editor's role is to take it through the process to help the author know what to do give them the advice they need to succeed, hopefully, um, to, to, uh, to, to a big part of the editor's job is to find good peer reviewers who can actually do the job. And that's, um, that's a, a really hard part, building a, a, a cadre of good peer reviewers who cover the wide breadth of topics that might get covered in a paper that comes into your particular journal, whatever journal you're the editor for. That's a really hard part of it and, a, and an important part of it. Um, and then afterwards, giving that advice back to the author. And then ultimately, the editor kind of gets to make that final decision they can choose to disagree with the peer reviewers if the peer reviewers say, oh, we want to accept this. And the, and the editor says, and, you know, I, I, I'm actually going to reject this anyway. They actually can do that. They have an enormous amount of power to that. I, I don't philosophically, I think that the, the editor should 
lean towards where the peer reviewers are. Um, but they do also get definitely some, some say in it. But I, I've come to believe that really the editor's most important job is to try and help shepherd the paper through the process and get it to its best possible version. And whether it ultimately gets published in that journal or maybe is given back to the author with some advice about maybe a better journal or a more, a more fitting journal, which sometimes happens. Uh, at least that's, that's a kind way to do it. Some editors, I don't think maybe are quite that nice, but that's what I would, that's what I tr strive to do. You're, you're translating, you're translating that frowny face into plain English for the, uh, uh, and, and blunting blunting the blows too a little bit. Too, uh, I, I did this not that long ago. I had a paper that went through peer review and I felt one of the three reviews was unreasonable like it was really i thought it was it had some things in it that were unfair like really overly harsh in a way that was the paper wasn't perfect it needed work but these were like mean right and so i gave those reviews those those comments back to the person but i did i added some notations that said i think this is going a little bit far don't be discouraged by this you know i i would say um, some of this advice is good advice. Some of this advice is perhaps, and I, I don't know. I think there's probably different philosophies among editors about whether that's appropriate, but I thought that that person would just see these comments and just become so discouraged. They probably would never want to publish with us. So giving that some context was important. I thought, do you, uh, do you so find you... it's become, Oh, go ahead, Gabe. Oh, uh, go ahead, Ken. Sorry. Do you find it's become more difficult to get peer reviewers? Um, like in, in your experience, like, do you find that it's, uh, it's, it's harder to get people to commit to it or, or is this just sort of, it's always been kind of difficult to get people to kind of respond and, and think about this as part of service, basically that we give back to. So it's hard for me to say from my own personal experience, cause I haven't been doing this that long, but I can tell you what I've heard from more experienced editors that this is true that this is a this is a trend towards it becoming more difficult to get peer reviewers and there's lots of theories why this might be and i think they're all relevant part of it is that there's traditionally reviewers are like academics and there are less academics than there used to be so there's there's not that many archaeologists who get jobs in academia it's there's there's less and less positions uh more and more archaeologists are working in more tenuous fields they're adjuncting or they're uh, visiting assistant professors or they're postdocs. And it's really hard to dedicate time to being a peer reviewer uh, when you're in those sorts of positions. CRM archaeologists traditionally haven't gotten asked to be peer reviewers as much um, as probably I think they should. And, and that's something I've tried to do is actually add more and more professional um, non-academic archaeologists to our list of peer reviewers. Uh, but that, but those folks have real hard restrictions on their time. You're asking people to do unpaid labor. Traditionally, you you mentioned the, the term service, uh, uh, Ken, and I think that's a really good one for academic positions. You know, when you're, you can consider that service. Like I put that on my tenure review that I did peer yeah. review for these journals. And I had a, a whole list of, you know, half a dozen journals that I'd done peer review for over the, like, over the last few years. And that was considered service. It was like a part of my tenure review. If I was a postdoc somewhere in my fifth year as a postdoc, or I'd left academia altogether because I was fed up not being able to get a job, I might say, I don't, I don't have time to do this peer review stuff. What, what's the point? What's this doing for me? I can't. And I, and I feel disconnected from the discipline because I, I was sort of barred for that. So I think some of it is discouragement um, uh, that comes from the really difficult job market that just never seems to end in academia. So that's part of it. But I think part of what, what you both are saying is that when it's when it's working at its best, the peer review process is really this kind of good faith effort on the part of the author, on the part of the editor, and on the part of the peer reviewers, right? That you, you the, the goal is to produce better 
work and work that's had had some sort of level of quality control on it. Yeah. Um, so I suspect that both of you sometimes on your, I'm guessing, maybe, maybe this is just me because I, I'm older and stuffier than I used to be, but you, you have this phrase in your in your syllabus that that students should use good scholarly sources or something like that, right? Yeah. Um, by which we we I think tend to mean peer-reviewed sources. Um, but uh, does that mean that uh, peer-reviewed sources are right and non-peer-reviewed sources are wrong? Uh, what does that mean? Uh, I've I've certainly got thoughts on that. I don't know, but Ken, do you want to jump in first? Because I've been going first every time. <laughs> A listener can't see that Bill is tugging his collar. Like he he looks <laughs> he looks like if you, I don't know if anyone's ever watched like bull riding on on YouTube, but you know where the bull is sort of like breathing heavily while they tie the rider on. That's what Bill looks like right now. The bull, not the rider. I, I think yeah. that I think that without question, um, you want to be pretty cautious about uh, the where these sources are coming from. But uh, there are certainly legitimate. Uh, venues for publishing in that are non-peer reviewed um, that can pr provide you within like a, so uh, I think a really good example from where we all work is like the main bulletin for example it's a non-peer reviewed contribution um, but there's actually some really uh, really important literature that you're going to miss if you don't go to the main bulletin for example so like archaeological societies produce bulletins and newsletters many of these are not peer reviewed some of them are um, but even a journal like Archaeology of Eastern North America, you can elect to have your um, most of the papers that end up in AENA are, are peer reviewed, um, but you can elect to have a non peer reviewed report in there. And so the editor will basically do a copy edit and kind of a, uh, you know, a check for sanity, I think is sort of the, uh, the, <laughs> the that would be your role at that point. Um, but yeah, I, I think you have to be cautious when you're uh, if you're drawing on only that kind of literature, um, but uh, but certainly I, th I think when you're talking about scholarly, I think you are pointing mostly to uh, peer-reviewed publications or through scholarly um, books, uh, basically that would have been reviewed from a uh, you know an edit editorial board or something like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I guess the, the thing I'll add to that is on the other side of the coin that of course just because something has been peer-reviewed also doesn't mean that yeah. it's uh, infallible by any means. Uh, and there's some, there's, there are definitely examples of papers that have made it through peer review and sometimes in very prestigious journals um, that uh, turn out to be outright fraudulent or, or have bad arguments or are not well-reasoned or, or receive uh, great deals of criticism from the scholarly community in the years after they're released. Um, you know, nature has gotten themselves a little bit of a reputation for this in recent years of publishing articles that are, I'll use the term, a little clickbaity, right? They're, they're things that make headlines, but in the long run turn out not to be particularly good pieces of scholarship. And nature is, you know, nature, that's the biggest journal in the world, right? That's the most prestigious journal there is probably. Um, I mean, arguably, it's certainly up there. Um, so you, so you, you also should should don't let that term peer review cloud your critical eye if you're reading something that is peer reviewed still come to it with that same critical perspective and recognize that that doesn't it's a it's a safety net but it's not a perfect one so uh you can you you should there's still criticism to be had of papers even if they have gone through peer review as well so goes i've been in, i've been invited to contribute to the uh prestigious uh i think it's like the archaeology of science or something like that i don't know it's one of these ones where they uh uh dear dr holyoke uh, yes. uh we, we would love to have you publish in our uh uh, all we need is your social insurance number. Um, 
Yes, there are a lot of scammy journals out there. And that's actually great, like practical advice uh, to bring up, Ken. Like as you get anywhere, if some of our listeners here are students or early career archaeologists, pretty soon you're going to start getting these emails. They're going to be, we've Googled your name and found something you wrote, and we would love it if you would publish it in our uh, in our uh, 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 our our PO box in Malaysia, you know, a journal or something like that. And it's, it's yeah, you just so <laughs> don't agree to publish with a journal unless you have done some due diligence and researched it. It should be a journal you've heard of or or your colleagues have heard of or your advisor has heard of. Somebody should have heard of it and can be able to vouch for it, for sure. And, and we'll talk about this in a bit uh, in the next segment. But uh, but but one of the things to think about when you're when you're approaching journals or you're thinking about where to submit or you're thinking about what to read is that different journals have different scopes, right? So probably part of the reason that Nature is getting clickbaity is that Nature can publish the most exciting research in the world, right? And that's that's that kind of edgy stuff that may that may really make headlines. Whereas the main bulletin is publishing, I mean, I, like, you know, literally uh, collections that people have in their basements, right? And that's, they're both <laughs> important, right? But the but the sort of sex appeal of those articles are very, very different, right? Yeah. Um, so I'm just curious, uh, if, if you were, you know, uh, a kid approaches you, you know, some 19-year-old who's really curious about Northeast archaeology, what, what journals should they be reading? Well, I uh, uh, agree. I mean, certainly they they should take a look at, there's these different, here, I'll use this as an opportunity to talk about this. And I think this builds on what you were just saying, Gabe, like these scopes. You Journals tend to sort of cluster in, I'd say, like levels of 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 regional focus you might say and uh and and I agree they're all actually really important but they um it can be kind of a tricky thing to decide where should I publish my paper or where should I try and find the right kind of papers that I want to read um based on this so you have I think going from sort of the smallest scale up um, at least in archaeology, we have like the state bulletins, right? And as, as you guys were saying, some of those are peer reviewed, some of them are not. Most of them are actually really good, though. Even uh, you know, it's like Maine Bulletin is not peer reviewed, but or or uh, which is, but it's still very very good. The Connecticut Bulletin actually is peer reviewed, um, so that's a full blown peer reviewed journal, and uh, and they publish really good they publish really good articles. But the scale and scope is fitting for that. They tend to be state level, even community level archaeological projects that don't necessarily have a huge amount of impact outside of that small space. Uh, and then you have the next level up, which is what North Historical Archaeology is, or the Archaeology of Eastern North America, or um, um, MCJA, a Mid-Continental yeah, yeah. Journal. Yeah. Exactly. What I call those regional regional journals. Uh, and they're, and they're journals uh, in archaeology that tend to deal with regions so north they tend you, the titles often will give this away right northeast historical archaeology is historical archaeology papers from all over the northeast and you do a little bit of research on what that means and that can mean anywhere from like virginia to newfoundland it's actually a pretty big it's it's quite a large uh, uh scale of space and they publish we publish articles for that whole that whole region um and from the entire historical period and sometimes even from the prehistoric period for if, if it's relevant in one way or another uh so i call those sort of regional journals the next level up from that i guess i would say are like 
national level journals. And this is where you do get your, in historical archaeology, we have historical archaeology, American antiquity, the Journal of Archaeological Science, the Journal of Anthropological Archaeology. Um, I don't know. There's a million at this level. Canadian uh, Journal of Archaeology. Yeah. What, I don't know, Gabe, you got five or six to name for. <laughs> um, yeah. yeah the, I was just going to say that the, the CGA is really kind of a regional journal with a big, with a big, uh, big wide 10 province scope, I think. But the, yeah, it's yeah. interesting. Yeah. It's, yeah. that's what I mean. That's actually kind of a good point in that the, the lines between, I'm suggesting these are really firm divisions, but they're not. There's some blur between them. Um, and then there's different prestige levels for each of these, which, I would in, in, in encourage you to try and ignore as much as possible. Finding the journal that's the right fit for you is probably better than trying to find the journal that's the most prestigious. Uh, but these kind of national. Scope- I like Bill saying this. I mean, I just think to remember a conversation with Bill where we said, "Wouldn't it be cool to have an article in American Antiquity?" And we, do, but, but I do believe that we never thought in a million years they would accept that journal article. And then they did. It, it does so, tend to be a, a very like Southwest journal a lot of the time, eh? Like it's a. Uh, it, we just that was a hundred percent like a movie moonshot and they gave yeah. us a revise and resubmit and we were like shocked oh. for the for the listener who's not um uh not not uh aware uh, uh bill was the lead author uh and with amy fox and gabe on a, a paper basically analyzing uh different sizes of house uh, household and domestic spaces uh throughout the northeast um did some statistical analysis comparing i think it was connecticut to the maritimes is that correct yeah, yeah southern, southern new england, england. Maritimes. yeah yeah, yeah. Um, and we're just going to return to that because I think there were some lessons in that 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 the that like a student who's thinking about publishing might might know you know about collaboration those kinds of things. But but we'll we'll get that, back that, to that. Could be a re- that could be a really good case study if we want to talk about that later. Uh, oh, the d- last point I would make on that is that you have those national level journals. Those are probably like the biggest journals you're going to see schmoes like us ever publish in. But there is in in fact an even higher level, maybe you'd call international journals, and that's where you do get your natures and your science, and those often as Gabe was saying before, have a scope that's broader than even just archaeology. They're publishing on every, you know, multiple disciplines. And that's like a whole different sphere. That's like you're going for your Nobel Prize or whatever. And uh and 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 if if you're thinking about publishing a paper in nature, you probably don't need any advice from me. I you're 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 in a very different place in your career. Uh so, so, so if you're publishing in nature, you actually don't listen to podcasts. You're up late. <laughs> You know, writing and, and yeah, you're probably writing right now. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, drink, drinking a protein shake and getting ready for bed. I think um, the so we've talked about uh, publication. We talked about some 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 vet, some journals that you might read. Um, conferences. Where do they fit into all of this? Uh, another great question. They, these two things are linked in complicated ways, conferences and journals. They they tend to be um, one and the same and yet separate. So um, most journals, not all, but most of them are tied to uh, organizations of scholars um, and, uh, and, and those organizations promote scholarship and archaeology in that particular area. So Kiniha, uh, Northeast Historical Archaeology is the journal for the Council for Northeast Historical Archaeology. Uh, ANA is the journal for ESAF, the Eastern States Archaeological Federation. American Antiquity is the journal of the SAA, the Society for American Archaeology, and so on, right? Uh, so those, they, the, the, the type of institution tends to match the scope of the journal. But the big thing that those those organizations do, in addition to publishing those journals, usually is they have an annual conference. Uh, and those conferences are, you know, in exotic locations, 
like a, like a like a <laughs> motel on the side of a Pennsylvania highway. If you're ESAF, um, and uh, the, <laughs> which always is fun. what was uh, what was Waterton's claim to fame? It was the most violent city in in the United States or something like that. <laughs> I told I told my supervisor I was going to Waterton, New York, and he told me this sordid tale that it was the worst place he'd ever visited in his life, basically. Like <laughs> the hotel that. was like $86 a night or something. And uh and the only the only restaurant in town was a Denny's, which was in the parking lot of the hotel, basically. Yeah. <laughs> ESAF is famous for having their conferences in the least romantic places you could possibly imagine. Uh, whereas, you know, uh, larger conferences are often in like cool cities, you know, around the country or even, I mean, at the SHA, Society for Historical Archaeology, I went to just a few months ago, was in Lisbon in Portugal. Very wow. cool. Didn't really get to see very much of the city when I was there, unfortunately. But uh, so sometimes they can be an opportunity to travel to cool places. Um, they usually try and balance that there's a recognition that a lot of people are not going to be able to afford to go to a conference like that. So journal, I think um, uh, organizations think, think carefully about how often they're going to have um, be in places like that. ESAF for all we joke about them being in these places, they're cheap. They're really affordable. Students can get to them. Uh, you know, usually you can get there on a tank of gas and $90 of hotel money. You know, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's really accessible. So there's, there's give and take to that, that question of where those locations are going to be. But conferences, the connection they have to publishing is, first of all, they're wonderful networking opportunities. They're vitally important to go to because that's where you make connections. Most good papers, including Gabe and I's American Antiquity paper with Amy Fox, was born on a cocktail napkin from a conference a hotel bar. Uh, that's that's not that's a that's a stereotype, but it's true that you do often make those sorts of connections. And but what, what Bill's not telling you is the cocktail napkin was was Amy explaining to us how to calculate the how to, what the difference between calculating the area of a circle and of a square. <laughs> well, we, we're going to come back to this. I, I don't want to give too much away about this paper, but. Amy Amy came onto the paper later on to fix the tremendous screw ups we had had in the statistics, which was mostly my fault. I take most credit for that. Uh, but that was that was Amy's job, and boy, she did a good job, and that was the only reason we got it published in a good journal. Uh, so, uh, but um, the conferences can also be, uh, you know, what you do at a conference is you go and you present a paper or you give a uh, maybe a poster. And usually those are the kind of root of a journal article, right? Many times a conference paper, you don't end up publishing every conference paper you give usually, but a good number of them will be the, the, the baseline for what will become a journal article later on. So oftentimes a conference paper might be seven or eight pages long. Uh, but you've got a bunch of stuff you can add to that. You turn it into 20 or 25 pages. Now it's a journal article that you're submitting. There's also often conferences usually have things like student paper competitions for those listeners who are maybe in school still. Uh, and if you win some of those, oftentimes the, one of the prizes is you get sort of a, 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 a fast shot into a publication of that article in the journal. So they can be a direct line into publication in that way too. So all those things are interlinked in, in uh, sort of complex ways. So going to conferences is actually an important part of publishing in a couple of different complicated ways. Ken, um, you uh, you had a paper out, uh, what is time? We're coming out of the pandemic, but you had just had a paper out pretty recently in a really good journal, Journal of Anthropological Archaeology, um, which is actually ranked higher than American Antiquity. Um, and I, I thought it might be useful for the, the listener if you just kind of walk us through like the life cycle of that paper. Um, so, you know, where did the paper start? Where did you present it? Uh, what did you do with it to get it whipped into shape for submitting? Um, sort of 
give give us like a sense of the life of a paper. So the paper really started um, uh, with my master's thesis. Um, so data collection during my master's, um, kind of a, a study that was part of the master's thesis. Um, maybe a couple of conference papers I think that I did on heat treating generally. Um, conversations with my supervisor at the time. She had done some stuff looking at um, uh, color uh, and in uh, in lithics basically and the so Sue Blair had done some work with this at a, I think also a conference paper looking at scrapers for example um, and uh, finished my master's and then it sat for several years um, and then I collected some more data as part of my PhD research and, and I started looking at the data set that I had kind of cursorily uh, looked at as as kind of a functional thing sort of quantifying the amount of time somebody may have stayed at this how at this particular location to uh, cook these rocks um and what i was seeing in a lot of these collections that i was looking at during okay, okay, my... okay. we can't use the phrase cook rocks this is a family program <laughs> <laughs> oh god so so as opposed it, as, as opposed to just talking about this in the in the the context of people um you know uh heat treating material uh what i was looking at was there's a there's a thing going on that i kind of make, made notation on there's color changing and so rethought this so the life cycle basically it kind of i had some new ideas about the data um i had read a whole bunch of more interesting stuff uh, as part of my phd work um i brought in some new data that i'd collected during my phd work um and basically wrote up i i kept about a like a three or four paragraphs from my master's thesis and the raw data. And then that became essentially this publication that, you know, it went in, I think in fall of, I don't know, fall of 2019 or early 2020, sometime around there. Um, about three months later, we get edits back. So it got, you know, uh, it went out for peer review, came back to us, um, revised it. And then, you know, in the fall of 2020, uh, a project that started 10 years earlier basically became a, a publication. So, and I recall that you, you presented pieces of that research, I think in Orlando at the SAA meeting. Oh yeah, I did actually. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. 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 So there's um, a couple, there was a PhD conference paper that brought the kind of new ideas in that rethought this data set. So, yeah. Um, and Ken, I know, I know you and I do this because we often uh, read each other stuff. Uh, Bill, Bill and I are, are, Bill mostly works on historical archaeology, so the more recent past. So we we tend to swap drafts less frequently. But um, so I tend to, if I'm going to submit stuff, have colleagues read it first to try to avoid humiliation. Um, <laughs> it's as best I can. Uh, and and Ken, I know I know you do that too. And so I mean, I think there's this kind of pre-process that uh, when we're talking about kind of being good citizens about kind of the archaeological community is that. You know, people send you stuff and you should you should try to try to look at it. Yeah. Um, and I, I encourage my students to do the same thing. I tell them, you know, like instead of writing a paper the night before, try to finish it three or four nights before it's due and have a friend read it. And just like, you know, somebody you trust who you, you know, isn't going to shatter you. Uh, but you have to kind of you have to build up a little bit of, you know, resilience to getting comments that sometimes you don't like to see um, mm -hmm. uh, because it's going to hurt less coming from a friend and somebody you trust than it does from some anonymous person uh, that uh, that you're not sure like if that like that's what everybody's opinion is so yeah and um the, the paper we were mentioning uh that that ken had out it was out in 2020 ken time really does fly 
Um, that's mm -hmm. uh, Holyoke, Blair, and Shaw. Aesthetics or function and heat treating, the influence of car preference and lithic preparation on the Maritime Peninsula, Eastern Canada. Uh, and it's Journal of Anthropological Archaeology. And, and you uh, always want to you always want to add that uh, that Eastern Canada uh, uh, tagline on a on a paper that goes anywhere outside of the Northeast, because uh, uh, otherwise nobody has any idea where you are. So. Yeah, I mean, with, with, we could talk at some point about like titling journal journal articles is an interesting content uh, kind of sort of thing to think about. One thing that I that that um, that I heard Ken say that was important there was the whole process took about ten years, and that's I don't know if you guys would agree with me. That's not that unusual. Um, that from like first blush thinking about a, a concept to the you're holding the paper in your hands in a physical journal can take years. Or sometimes it can go quite fast, uh, uh, so it's not always that way. In fact, I think the American Antiquity paper that Gabe and I wrote with Amy, that paper moved actually quite fast for a fun stories worth uh, having to do with me losing half of my dissertation data six months before I had to um, uh, defend it. Uh, that uh, that's the, that could be a story for later if we want. Um, so sometimes it can move more quickly, but it's not unusual for these things to move quite slow. Uh, and the other thing I'll, the other, the other thing I'd say that I'd agree with Ken on, um, and our, or Gabe, I think you were talking about the idea of like sharing papers with friends. One of the beauties of doing peer review when you're asked to do it or, or reading papers for friends or colleagues, um, or, or even becoming an editor is it's, it's really cool to see what is the cutting edge research, what people are talking about right now, before it's even out, you're seeing it's, it's been exciting doing this editor job in the region that I'm really passionate about, that I know a lot about and, and care about. And I'm seeing people's ideas are that before they even are fully formed, it's, it's really neat. So it's a, it is a way of also kind of connecting with the community and that the archeological community, the scholarly community in that way too. Um, you're getting in some ways like an advanced look at the scholarship that's coming down the pipeline. It's really cool. And so I, I've got to, uh, we, we're going to have to get to the second half here uh, soon. Ken and I have been running, running a little bit long lately, but the, uh, and, and we could probably keep you here uh, all night, Bill. Um, because we're not even anywhere near a half finished bottle of Corvassier yet, but the um, but you you mentioned uh the peer reviewer and what makes a good peer reviewer like from an editor's point of view. I sort of know from from a writer's point of view, I know that kind of a, a there there can be a certain nasty tone in a peer review where you sort of get the sense right away that the peer reviewer is not necessarily trying to enhance the paper. You can sometimes get a very difficult review that points out that you probably shouldn't publish this. And, th and that can be done in a productive way, I think, you know, sort of a like, this is the wrong place for this kind of mm -hmm. comment. Um, and I, but then I often find that the, the peer reviews I like the most are actually um, not necessarily positive reviews, but I think productive reviews. They offer suggestions. They're fairly specific. Um, they frequently point out some piece of literature that you may have missed, you know, so that you haven't cited something that you really should have cited. Um, uh, and, and that can often open new, new avenues, or they can often point out um, kind of errors of uh, almost of judgment, right? That you, you thought you were very clear about something. And in fact, what you've done is uh, muddied the waters in, in some regard. I find that that often yeah. peer review will point out with my stuff that, I haven't been super clear about time, right? That like, what order did things happen in? You know, it turns out time is a powerful organizational principle in Western culture. <laughs> and if you, if you try to step outside of it, 
you're you're in a lot of trouble. So so what makes a good peer reviewer? Uh, I, I mean, I, I, I would say in terms of an editor's perspective, it's largely the same. I, I don't think it's that different. So uh, the to me, and, but here's the reason why, in addition to obviously those are the most helpful things that an author can get, which is constructive feedback, thoughtful feedback, kind and compassionate feedback. Um, those are all things that are beneficial to the author to ultimately make the paper better. And that's what I care about as the editor is, is um, number one, that the paper gets to its best possible version and, uh, and, and simultaneously that it does so without uh, um, destroying the author or making them feel like, like a, like a jerk or like that they're useless. Cause I don't want to do that. I don't want to, that's, that's not doing a service to the, uh, to the discipline uh, to, to disengage my colleagues because they're getting these nasty reviews. So, uh, so, so all of that is true, but here's the reason why I think it's even more important to the editor, just as important to the editor is most journals, even journals that are quite specific, um, like I would say Northeast historical archaeology is more specific than many others. I do not have nearly the breadth of knowledge that I need to critically assess every paper that comes in. Sometimes people are talking about things that I just don't know very much about. We're talking about 19th century industrial archaeology in New Jersey. I just don't know I intentionally don't know anything about New Jersey. Uh, I, I drive hours around the state, if at all possible. Uh, I will swim. No, we'll have you know that on this podcast, Ohio is the worst state. We've we've defined <laughs> this in an earlier in an earlier episode, but but we can put New Jersey on as second worst. I, I have like. many good friends in New Jersey. I I, I it's I I I'm joking, kind of. Uh, but it's uh, no, it's, it's it's it's. But truly, like right, there's so many times I'll get papers. Um, and I, I just, I, it's way outside my special, my specialization in my zone. So the peer reviewer, in addition to being beneficial to the author is beneficial to the editor because I don't, I do can never grasp the literature as widely as the, the, the peer review pool can. So like your point Gabe, about, Hey, here's a citation, a vital citation you missed. I'm not going to be able to give them that feedback. So that's hugely helpful if a peer reviewer can do that. Although you always have to watch out for that person that makes 10 suggestions for you to cite one particular author. And, and it's not that hard to figure out that that yeah. one particular author is in fact your peer reviewer. Uh, that's yeah. so you can watch the out person for that. selling their book that. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that is, I have not actually found that that happens. Uh, it, it hasn't happened to me very often, but that's an old sort of stereotype uh, that that's supposedly going to happen. We we had uh, we figured out a reviewer one time because they politely pointed out that uh, they had actually wrote essentially the same paper that Gabe and I wrote uh, about 15 years before we were born, um, and uh, <laughs> and we were presenting this as a novel concept and hadn't cited them. Oops! Yeah, that was not our <laughs> finest moment, was it? They. Uh... So, but this actually raises kind of an interesting thing. Sorry that we we should have mentioned a listener who's who's never gone through this process. So typically there's different ways that this is done, but typically the peer reviewers are anonymous, mm -hmm. but the author is not anonymous. That's true. Usually. Yes. Although there's yeah. sometimes there are some journals that are nominally double blind. Yeah. But Although if you're sharp, not hard oh, really? at all. Who does that? Yeah. Um, so like advances in archeological practice is double blind. So the, in theory, the, person reviewing the paper doesn't know the author so if you submit a paper they make you redact in theory the stuff that the author that a peer reviewer should be able to figure out who you are from hmm. 
but it's pretty impossible, right? I mean, like, yeah, I mean, yeah, there's only so much you can do. Um, and I think most journals recognize that. So they go with the the kind of part blind thing where some number of peer reviewers who are unknown to the author. Um, but it, it, I think it highlights the kind of good faith nature that this is all supposed to take, right? Yeah. Like the opportunity to snipe at people while anonymous is certainly tempting, but that's what the internet is for, you know? Yeah, exactly. Because go to Twitter, man. That's what it's for. That's, yeah, what, exactly. that's what Reddit's for. Um, Just be one of the 60,000 people to post on Bill's YouTube channel. <laughs> <laughs> There's so many. Oh my God. Yeah. Uh, boy, those keyboard warriors on youtube.com is pretty yeah. something I could tell, tell you a lot about. Uh, yeah. The, it, I, one thing I've, I've been shocked by is how many peer reviewers um, have intent, have willfully uh, given their identity within their reviews. Sometimes people will, will say, Oh, by the way, this is uh Joe Schmo at so-and-so feel free to email me at this email address. If you uh, want to chat about this topic. And that's yeah. like, I only have to do that because I think being anonymous as a peer reviewer, if you're being respectful, kind, constructive reviewer, you, I, I do not knock anybody for remaining anonymous. I think that's completely fine. It's the normal part of the process, but it does speak to that. That's a, a powerfully good faith moment to say, yeah, I'm going to go out there and just tell this person who I am. <laughs> and, do, you think, uh, do you think some of that though is, is, uh, is a regional thing? Like, uh, you know, like there's a fairly collegial uh northeast group both in the historical and the pre-contact world you know there's like obviously professional tensions but i think as a as a rule most people are are pretty respectful of one another do you think it's like more do you get that more in a regional scale or do you like i don't think i don't know if you'd see as much of that in in like broader journals would you a good question i don't know and we'd have to maybe ask uh see if we could chat with a, a journal editor from from one of the national journals and see see if that happens there. I'm trying to recall if I've ever gotten that in a review. Can you guys think of that? Or like not at the regional or state level, but at the national level? I had a CJA review once where um, the uh, my my phone rang in my office from the review. The fellow wanted to walk through, walk through the comments with me. It was super helpful, actually. But Oh, I, I, you know, I, I had an opposite experience of this recently, and this was for this was for a national journal, was for a big national journal where I wrote a review for somebody, and it was a I thought I kind all those things I just said I try and do, do all those things when I write peer reviews, so per perfectly good paper that just needed that mild criticism, and that person the the author of Facebook messaged me the next day to say, oh, by the way, Bill, I know you wrote me that review. Thanks, there was some great advice in there. Oh, but nice. They had just figured out from my advice that yeah. it was, and uh, and and it turned out like you were saying, and it was because it was a very specific topic that there's like five people in the world who can say anything about this particular god subject. So yeah. it wasn't hard to figure out who it was. So it is so far away talking about hair gel and historical. Yeah, we were talking about hair gel. Yeah, we were yeah. talking about. We we're talking about curl power. We we're talking yeah. about chest hair. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's, Bruce it's Springsteen a, records. Mm -hmm. all, no, no, the whole no, thing. Crazy. I'll do Jersey. That's the only thing. It's Billy Joel. Maybe Billy Joel. Oh, right, right, right. Yeah, yeah. Sorry. They, um, but, uh, but, uh, you know, I mean, so she had a nice white dress and a party under conversation. But let's talk yeah, about yeah. gray dresses for a minute. What is the gray literature? Wow. What a transition. That, those, 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 those professional grades right there. Standing ovation for that. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> what were we talking about? Gray literature? Yeah. <laughs> And do you uh, spell it, Mr. Farley, with an E or an A? Oh, great question. How did you? I've noticed it? that you've you've uh, you've gotten very Canadian in your writing, Gabe. That's uh, it's an E in here. 
It's an E in our notes. Is that the Canadian one? Yeah. Yeah. I've just, revealed, I've just revealed that we have show notes. That's a, yeah. sorry. That's an insider podcasting tip. Everybody, everybody has show notes. People know. Yeah. I started doing that when uh, I started spending uh, I during the pandemic more time out of the country than is super comfortable. And I, you know, had to start like really keeping track to make sure I don't lose my permanent resident status. And I was just like, well, I better just make sure I add all the U's. You get an extra day and a half for each U you use. Yeah, it's good. It's good. Uh, so what are we talking about? Great literature? Yeah, just what uh, is it? Just, 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 we've, you've used the term in the podcast before. and so Yeah, great literature. And, and and help me if, if you've got a stronger definition for this, but great. I mean, great literature is, is um, uh, uh, publications within a discipline that are, um uh, in that are important and often very descriptive usually kind of light on interpretation um and uh, but but often um uh published in ways that are a little bit hard to get access to so the classic example of gray literature in archaeology would be like a crm report uh yeah. that comes from a cultural resource management mitigation survey or whatever and the pi for that project will write a meticulous multi-dozen, potentially multi-hundred page description of the project and meticulous notes on the site. And this will go into a public report into some SHPO office at the State Archaeologist of New Jersey. Uh, and how do you get access to that as an archaeologist so that you can use it for data? Uh, uh, and that can be a tremendous challenge. So some of the most important, so we, you know, we talk a lot about like, does that count as publishing? Well, sure. Uh, but is it publicly accessible? Certainly not. And sometimes it's not even accessible to other scholars, other archaeologists. So uh, that's what I got for that. You know, guys want to expand on that a little bit. No, I think that's the gist of it. I think it's basically it's that it's it's publication that is is sort of outside of traditional venues. That's um, um, in some way a little bit more difficult, even for like you said, scholars to access and that kind of thing. And um, I'm and I'm guessing the black and the white are like would white be the publication like the accessible is I, I we don't know. ever talk about black and white publications. White papers are working papers, aren't they? Like they're like your drafts. Are they? I I don't really know. So is the black like is it in the black like your is that's published? I, I guess, right? Great question. Yeah, the white paper. Or is it gray because it's a speaking about they just exist in a gray area? In a gray area. That's yeah. often what I thought of when I think of gray literature, which they do sort of. They sort of exist in this weird published but also not accessible um, space. That's that's uh, when it comes back to ethics, sort of the first thing we brought up way back in the beginning. Um, what is the ethical responsibility of an archaeologist? Well, according to sort of statute, federal, state, provincial statutes, typically it's to produce one of these reports and submit it to the office of, you know, the province of the state or whoever. Um, but nobody ever gets to read it. So what's the point, right? So and, I, and the flip side of it too, is that, you know, you don't get as producing only gray literature. You don't really get the credit that you're kind of due for doing the kind of work that you yeah. produce right Great literature um, is, is tremendously labor intensive and thoughtful and i didn't want to knock it before by saying it's light on interpretation it normally that's sort of a, a, a requirement that they, they don't want to get too deeply into the interpretation in a lot of gray literature but it can be some really important scholarship there and yeah you're right it just you get you know you can't put it on your cv you can't put it on your uh well i guess you can but i don't know if anybody does it's 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 uh it's not it's not peer-reviewed so it's not valuable you know yeah, yeah. The, the, so we, I did a similar uh, one of these things with uh, Artspeace a while ago for um, ESAF. He's the editor of Archaeology of East North America. And, and one point he made that I thought was really interesting was 
I basically asked him the question, you know, why should people publish? And he divided between two kinds of answers. And the first one was the altruistic answer, which is all the stuff we've talked about. And then he he sort of, you know, meaningfully through Zoom locked eyes with the people who are fairly early career and said, also, publication is the best way to get yourself known as an archaeologist, that there's there there are real reasons to do this as an archaeologist too. Um, you know, sort of an element of this of just being engaged with the discipline, getting known as an archaeologist, which opens up all sorts of exciting opportunities, right? Like um, like writing with both of you guys has opened up opportunities for me to have fun experiences, uh, fun intellectual experiences that I wouldn't have had otherwise. Um, and and so so these sorts of things. So it's not a, and plus it really is a huge endorphin rush to see your name in in print. There's, there's a, you, it is. you get locked yeah. in these fonts and it's and it's a lot of fun and uh so i think that i think we, we don't want to <laughs> we've all got our little crosses to bear you know but we're not exactly setting ourselves up here as martyrs i guess yeah and 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 the and the professional element of it too if you want to get a job in many fields you know publish or perish they say and then that's that's uh to a certain extent true certainly if you want to get a job in academia but even elsewhere you know you want to get a pi job at a at a crm firm you want to get a research work in a research lab work for a center work for a museum work for there's so many different jobs in archaeology and none of those are going to uh, um, uh sniff at you having a nice long list of peer-reviewed journal articles in your in your on your cv um that's always a boon uh, for any kind of job in archaeology so professional okay. benefits as well yeah so, so uh, the listener can't see this, but Bill is braiding his five o'clock shadow as we speak here. So, um, so I, we should probably turn to the second half of <laughs> the second half of our second half of our program, uh, which is just some advice for students and early career archaeologists who are looking to publish that first or maybe that second paper. Um, some sort of tips, um, and particularly, I'm sort of imagining this as. Um, I know all of us have been at this this point because I think I believe when you do this, Bill, it won a student paper competition. Um, I was there, uh, help involved with Ken when he did this. Um, uh, which is that you've got an MA thesis, so you've got two hundred pages, and you would like to turn it into twenty five pages of something that someone's actually going to read, other than the three people who are contractually obligated to do it by being on your committee. Um, and so I I thought we'd maybe imagine the next section of this. Uh, program being aimed towards towards that student, you know, who's who's maybe finishing up the MA thesis. But um, so just to kind of level set here, uh, you've mentioned what Northeast Historical Archaeology does. You've mentioned uh, what kind of region it works in. So how should someone in general figure out where to publish their their research? What's the what's the kind of best advice you would give? You've got this thesis. Where do I send it? When do I send the paper I'm going to extract from it? Well, we yeah we 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 mentioned um, um, the the conference, so maybe you already have an idea of which conference you might be presenting that information at. The journal associated with that conference might be a good fit, right? So that's but perhaps that's already a step further than you've gotten. One bit of advice I'd say is to speak to your peers and advisors and the further the archaeologists that you know who are further along in their career, maybe that's your professors, they probably can give you some advice about good fits because I think ultimately journal articles, it's about fit. Probably if you've written a master's thesis and it's a good enough master's thesis to get you graduated from your master's program, it is almost certainly publishable. It's probably, you know, like somebody can publish that. More likely if you're if you're if your paper derived from 
and that got rejected at a journal, they're going to tell you this journal wasn't a good fit for this for some reason. So picking the right journal is really important. So yeah, I would say speaking to um, friends, colleagues, advisors, professors who um, have some experience with publishing and say, hey, this is my topic. What Can you tell me some journals you think are a good fit? Um, reaching out to editors. If you've got a handful of journals that you think there's, there's really, you can find their email on the website usually. One of the things, this doesn't happen to me very often, but sometimes I get emails from potential authors who are saying, here's what my paper's about. Is this a good fit for this journal? Would you be interested in publishing this? And usually the answer is we'd certainly be interested in at least looking at it, sending it out for peer review. Um, so you can do that. You can certainly do that. Um, uh, get feedback at a, at a conference. If you go to a conference, uh, if somebody is in the audience, so you get into a conversation about your paper, maybe ask them, where, where do you think would be a good place to fit this? I don't know, just be, be uh, open enough to ask for advice from folks who have uh, been around a little bit longer. How do you pick, Ken, where, where you send stuff usually? Um, I think like, <clears throat> certainly reading like a look at a journal and kind of read the content, you know, read some of the abstracts from some of the articles, maybe in the most recent issue or um, flip through some back issues, try to get a sense of, um, you know, the scope of it. Most journals have an abstract. Um, so they kind of give you a sense of like what the uh, scholarship or what the scholarly area is that they're focused on. Um, yeah. But, but as Bill said, uh, tap into networks and, and get a sense from people you know, like uh, uh, work up an abstract and kind of get a really good like core concept for what your paper is and be able to distill that into, you know, 200, 300 words um, and, you know, see what what it is you're trying, what are the bigger questions that you're trying to answer, right? Um, and, and probably identify two or three journals that you think are probably good fits because I think you have to, you know, um, if if you think you have something ready that is is you can aim high on and kind of go for one of these uh, bigger journals, um, I think you also want to kind of prepare yourself for rejection and and you know maybe a little bit of a rewrite and try somewhere else um, and uh, and certainly be thinking about strategy in terms of of uh, what the journal is. But I mean it's it's complicated, right? Because you have to almost write a paper to the journal that you're going to submit it to because Every journal has different uh, restrictions on pagination, figure content, like all this other stuff. And, and, uh, and like word count is a big thing, right? You know, like uh, uh, if you've got a piece that you don't think fits within 10,000 words, um, you know, uh, or eight, I think in some places now, uh, that's a pretty tight piece of uh, scholarship, right? And, and uh, uh, if you're going from master's thesis to 8,000 words, uh, as somebody who writes uh, like I talk, uh, this is like the, <laughs> yeah, this is the biggest challenge for me. Right. So, yeah, Ken, I wasn't going to mention it, but I, you, you, you asked my opinion on a draft of the aesthetics or function and heat treating paper. And I remember it because I, I, for, I was in Washington DC when you said it to me and I, yeah. I, my partner, I think was off at a conference or something and I was in a coffee shop and I opened it up. It's like 80 manuscript pages. And, uh, so I, I, I think my, my contribution was I eliminated like all of them. And then I circled the part that I thought was the paper. And you were like, oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I did that this with my, I did this with my supervisor, but uh, uh, about three months ago, I sent him a, a you know, a, a 24,000 word manuscript for the final paper. And, and, uh, and he was like, well, I'll read it all, but this isn't, this isn't ready for a journal. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, my my, master, my master's thesis was a cool 110 pages, which I felt was very tight at the time, and uh, and 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 uh, bringing that down to 
you know, what's about 20 pages, you know, to get it down to, I think ultimately the draft was about 8,000 words. Um, it, it turned out there was a lot of fluff in that 110 pages. I, there was yeah. a lot of stuff in there just was not essential to the arguments. I like, I, I like that Ken brought up um, abstract writing. If you've never had any experience with writing abstracts, I actually use this as a technique in teaching, like in writing classes, classes that are development. I almost always try and get the students to write an abstract first, even though it's kind of backwards, usually you write your abstract last. Um, but it's such a good exercise for finding the absolute crux of your paper. What is the thesis? What is the what is the method? What is the conclusion? Uh, and do those logically flow into each other, one to the next to the next? Uh, they should, they probably do. Um, but finding those and being able to do that in 300 words, which is nothing, right? It's a few sentences, um, is uh, it, you're, you're going to be able to then take a look at the larger paper and realize places where you could start to reduce, 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 tighten, tighten, tighten. Ken also made a good point about, yeah, every time you're going to submit to a new journal, dedicate yourself to expecting you're going to have to do a day or two of work of recalibrating the paper, not only in citation style and um, and pagination and all of that, but also maybe in a little bit of the argument, because sometimes like a big national journal will want you to make a case. We had to do this with the American Antiquity Paper Game. I remember like we had to find a way to make a case that this had like international appeal, that it said something meaningful, yeah. not just to the region of the East Coast of North America, but to the world essentially that's what they wanted that's what a journal like that wants and if we had to then recalibrate it down to more of a regional journal we'd probably want to take all that out because it didn't really make sense for a journal like that so so just for the folks who are listening who who maybe aren't that familiar with the the super academic literature because typically we have a lot of kind of readers who are more familiar with the pop literature what's what's an abstract and then for the folks who are interested in publishing what makes a good abstract cool uh uh, I, 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 I get started really quick on that. An abstract is a, only because I teach this every semester so I can give you my little 10 second spiel. Uh, an abstract is a very brief overview of the paper. So it's usually a few hundred words. It's it, every, you have to write these a lot in academia. So you have to write them for journal articles, every conference paper you write. Oftentimes, if you're giving like a talk somewhere, they'll ask you to give an abstract. So these are really, you have to learn how to write these things. And they, this is the challenge. Truly, the abstract should say everything that the paper does, but in in a, a paragraph. So they it it, it uh, it's your there's it's not like the um, headline of a of a of a piece in a newspaper where you're burying the lead or you're trying to like entice people to read. You want the abstract to literally tell the the reader everything. So it tells them what is this paper about. How did you, um, you know, construct your hypothesis, test your hypothesis? What methods did you use to test it? And what were your conclusions? What did you find? What were the findings? Um, now, none of the detail is there, obviously. So the data, the figures, the maps and pictures, as our old advisor would say, is the only part that's worth looking at, uh, Gabe and I. Uh, the, the, uh, the, uh, all that stuff. And, and then also all the description, the literature review, which is all the scaffolding you give your paper from all the previous writing that's been written about that topic by everybody who's come before you, all the shoulders you're standing on. None of that is there. But those most essential elements, you're telling them because the, the goal of an abstract is to um, hopefully provide people an opportunity to not read your paper. Because what you're trying to do is give people, like Ken was saying before, you're flipping through the journal, you're skipping to the abstracts, and you read them and you go, this is relevant to what I need. 
I'm going to read this later. This is not relevant to what I need. I don't have to read that, right? That's kind of what abstracts are for. They tell you really quickly, do I want to get into this paper and read it? Because uh, sometimes the title might be like, oh, this is a great paper. It's exactly what I need to read. And then you get 13 pages in and realize you've just wasted an hour and a half of your life that you can't get back. So um, oh, that was not a 10 second description, but that's, that was, that's what I got. <laughs> it's all right, Bill. It, it, would you say it covered that the abstract should cover the nature and distribution of the paper? It should. It absolutely should. should, should, should cover <laughs> I've managed to drop that in everything I've ever written. So we got to get it. <laughs> the, uh, Bill, Bill and our, our, our old supervisor, Kim McBride, uh, had, had a, this phrase, the nature and distribution. I still don't really know what it means, but it snuck into everything. The nature and distribution of whatever. <laughs> Including just, just normal conversations with him about like his favorite shark. He would find yeah, yeah. a way. To do yeah, the nature and distribution of its palate. Um, <laughs> the uh, and and so uh, when we've so you've got the abstract and, and the abstract appears before the before the paper. It's it's basically it's the kind of cliff notes version of this. And so as you kind of indicate, we you know you don't want it's not creative writing. You don't want surprises, right? We want answers, you know, and then and then we'll flesh this out in the middle. And so. Um, when uh, someone's doing this, when you're sitting at the editor's desk, um, what are the big mistakes people make when they submit papers to you and you think, whoa, boy, this is the eighth time I've seen this this year and it's, you know, only March. <laughs> How can I fend this off? What, what do people screw up? Uh, I, I would say a big, uh, a, a big problem and that you can see this oftentimes in the abstract is a, a, a paper that lacks what I often, what I call in class, at least it's a term I think I made up, which is like linkage. So a lot of times papers will not have a, a logical set of steps from part to part. So you'll read the introduction and the introduction will make some big claims about what this paper is going to do. And then you will read the method uh, the methodology and you'll go, okay, that seems like an interesting methodology. And then you're reading the data and the conclusions and it's not super clear how the methodology led to those conclusions uh, or the, the finding of that data or the big things they said were gonna happen in the introduction did not pan out in the, in the, in the conclusions or the findings. Uh, and then the conclusion goes back to the beginning, the big findings, the big ideas that never really happened in the middle. So that paper would lack the, like, like the proper, and I think this is a natural inclination because we're, we're all taught that like we wanna sort of sell ourselves. So we're, we're making sort of big claims that aren't really there. Whereas you would be better served by what did we actually find in this paper? What does it actually say about whatever um, scale of analysis we're looking at uh, and be uh, quite honest about that because that becomes really glaringly obvious when people have done that. They've made a big claim in the introduction and the conclusion that just does not really happen in the in the space between those two. Uh, so that's a that's a pretty common problem. I'm going to uh, stop you for because Ken is chopping at the bit and I know exactly what he's going to go say. Go for it, Ken. We, we, we had a, an anthropology <laughs> professor, UNB, um, uh, who uh, was a colleague of Gabe's for a while before she retired, uh, but she was uh, an undergraduate prof and, and, a, and a graduate super uh, uh, committee member for both of us, I think, and and uh, Melanie Weiber uh, would talk about the red thread uh, and the red thread having to be drawn through the entire paper from start to finish. And so, if you if you strayed too far from this thread, um, uh, you weren't able to make that coherent argument. And and, and Gary, my supervisor, has a has a similar. Uh, term where he talks about holding someone's hand from A to B, from B to C, from C to D, and then 
at, once you're at D, you probably want to look back and like grab A again, and then you know uh, uh, go to the end sort of thing. So, so was that was that was that you were what you were expecting? Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. that's exactly what I knew you were going to say. Yeah. It's so that's funny. I guess we're all inventing our own terminology for this exact same concept, and yeah. uh, we probably all settle on a term that works. I like the thread, the red, thread. the red thread. Yeah, I share that with my students. I think it's particularly like it's easy to remember, right? Yeah, it's kind of, a, it's, it's a nice metaphor, right? It's got a nice imagery to it. I like that. There's a box truck that drives around Manchester, New Hampshire that I send pictures to Ken every once in a while of that just says the red thread. I think it sells maybe office furniture oh, or something. Right. I'm not really sure. Every, <laughs> you know, every every three months I see that, you know, I get the market basket or just driving on Elm Street or something and I send Ken a picture. Another the last thing I was gonna say is another common thing, and it brings up a good story for you and I is finding the right we were just talking about like metaphor and imagery and symbolism your language style is can be a challenge because i never want to tell an author like write boring right because actually i think that could be a real problem with academic scholarship is that it there's no artistry it, it can be it can lack artistry right and sometimes that can make for really excruciating reading but you can also uh be overly artistic right and sometimes the language can can get a little weight away from you and get super flowery and that can be distracting so finding that right balance uh, and again i think like ken was suggesting before going to previous issues of the journal reading is important the more reading you do the better writer you're going to be and that's true here too if you're reading journal articles you'll get a feel for it while also finding a way to bring your own voice into that and i remember gabe the story i'll tell for this was gabe and i wrote a paper together with a former student of ours, an undergraduate student in the main uh, in the main bulletin, uh, that actually was a great little paper and fun, and and uh, even gets cited every once in a while. And uh, uh, our, our our shared student was undergraduate when we were graduate students, and it was really his paper. He's first author on it, and he should have been. It was his idea. He really did the research. He did the work on it. Uh, but he wrote like um, like a Civil War veteran writing to his sweetheart back in South Carolina, like uh, uh, and he had the mustache to match. Uh, and and so you know, like that was. I remember our biggest job was 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 reining that in a lot. And uh, uh, you know, uh, my dearest from the front, my dearest. <laughs> it was sort of like talking about mean ceramic dating or whatever it was. No, it was whatever it was that we were. Doing. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. John Fable had a real um, kind of a Bronte sister after four bottles of wine kind of kind of vibe going on too. Brilliant uh, guy, brilliant guy ahead of his years and writing publishable journal articles as an undergraduate, which is no small feat. But uh, but we had we had to we had to like uh, uh encourage him to write uh slightly less floridly. So yeah, yeah. I mean it's 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 never a bad idea to when you get done writing a paper, just count the adverbs, you know. Yep. <laughs> That's what Stephen King says to do, right? Pull out all the adverbs and yeah, yeah, uh, see where you stand, yeah. <laughs> um so you've got this this long MA thesis, probably we all, I mean, even I mean, Bill, Bill was very proud of this. He's like, oh yeah, I wrote a 110 page master's thesis. And Ken and I are like, oh geez, you know, we, we were way more than that. We, but but the, what the listener doesn't necessarily know is that, so, okay, listener, think about what's, what's a topic in archaeology that seems like it's boring enough that it shouldn't take very many pages. And you, you might be thinking rocks. And then you're like, well, no, Ken works on rocks. They're colorful. They're interesting. No, no, listener, it's wood charcoal. <laughs> Bill Farley <laughs> wrote an entire master's thesis about different species of wood charcoal. <laughs> I sure did. <laughs> from not even old wood charcoal. It's like wood charcoal from like 1800, wasn't it? 
Yeah, mostly 19th century, early yeah. 19th century uh, wood charcoal. It sure did. I was looking comparing two uh, two two uh, two houses on the Mashin Tucky Pequot Reservation. One of them a tribe, you know, a, a Native American house, Pequot house, and one of them a non-Native house, Euro-American settler house. And uh, and and comparing the things they made their houses out of the fires they burned in their firewood to make broad sweeping generalizations about the human condition. <laughs> yeah. So, but, but I actually thought the, the paper that came out of that was really interesting. I never read the thesis because thankfully the paper came out quick enough that I didn't feel obligated to. Why would you, why would you possibly read that? Yeah. So, okay. So here's a really nuts and bolts question. You're a, um, you're, you're submitting your first paper. Um, Archaeology doesn't happen in a vacuum. We all work with other people. How do you decide who gets a co-authorship? So who is who is on the top line with you with with uh, your name in bold, and who gets uh, tucked in the acknowledgments at the end of the paper? Mm. Yeah, I don't know, Ken. Do you want to start us on this one? I feel like I'm ta- I'm 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 taking up a lot of space because I mean I know I'm the guest or whatever, but. Uh, so I think the author, uh, most journals sort of have a definition of what constitutes authorship, and it's that you've contributed something to either the initial conceptualization of the paper, uh, you've contributed uh, significant data to it, you've done substantial writing to it, um, and revision, um, you've, uh, uh, I don't know, been an expert reviewer of it in some kind to sort of like, you know, um, um, uh, you bring in like an Amy Fox to do your statistics. Uh, we brought in Cliff Shaw, who's a earth scientist who um, basically uh, had provided us with a bunch of interpretations on, um, uh, you know, what the what the heat treating data was that we were seeing. He made a funny comment on the final revision of the paper uh, that was like, this all looks good to me. I'm still not convinced it's chert, uh, but uh, but that's a conversation for another day. That's like that's, Gabe, that's Gabe's third law of maritime uh, maritime uh, archaeology, though, is that, that don't trust the rocks. Yeah, yeah. Apparently, he apparently everything is volcanic uh, in his mind, so it's a, it's not a chart if it's volcanic. But, yeah, uh, but he works. He's, he's a volcanist, though, isn't he? Yeah, volcanologist. Yeah, vol- yeah, volcanologist. Vulcan. Vulcan. If you're a Vulcanist, don't you st- study the Vulcans from <laughs> from Star Trek? <laughs> That's a good question. Yeah, yeah. I saw Bill getting excited, so I assume that must be. The case. Uh, I'm, not a, I'm no, I'm no Trekkie. I got, I got nothing. I have zero knowledge on Star but, Trek. But I think, I think um, an acknowledgement can be. Um, so I think, uh, Gabe, you've been, you've been uh, witness to this, and and uh, Bill, maybe you, with with Kevin, you've kind of had the same thing. Um, we. Gabe and I have both inherited like sort of troves of data from Dave Black. Um, and, and Dave is incredibly humble about the work that he's done and sort of refuses authorship on some things. Um, but I think if you inherit uh, uh, information or you receive data from people um, that like, you know, contribute a significant portion of what you're doing, um, if they're not doing the writing on it, you basically talk to them about like, I think you should be a co-author and they say, well, no, I didn't really do anything writing on this and acknowledgement is fine. And that's kind of where you bring in who gets acknowledged. And, and that's like somebody who has contributed in some way or facilitated the research in some way, um, but not necessarily um, provided any kind of like uh, contribution to any part of that paper. And I, I think you do have to be able to um, not necessarily quantify, but be able to justify your contribution. And and many journals actually require you to do this now. You have to you have to make author statements where you 
Um, you actually like, you know, when we did the JA, you had to, they had this ticky box list of all these sort of categories that you could assign people to and how they, how they contributed to authorship. And, and in order to, um, what's the term, uh, um, not ghost authorship, Gabe, what's the courtesy authorship, courtesy authorship yeah, yeah. was the one that we looked up when, when, when we were deep in these issues, which is a story for off air, perhaps for the listener. But yeah. I mean, but if you, if you, if you're the lucky, per- <laughs> we should, in addition, to, if, if you win, if you send in the title this, this week for the thing, um, uh, Ken and I will, uh, will log into Bill's Twitch stream and tell you about the time we really had to think about authorship, <laughs> uh, and in which we were editing a volume and it was a probably not the most fun we've ever had. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so so this is this is sort of thing is it's kind of a substantive contribution, not a peripheral one. As Ken pointed out, it um, it uh, senior scholars often seem to decline authorship, um, which is extremely generous of them. Uh, you know, Dave Black has for both of us declined authorship in situations in which he was entitled to it. Um, Arts Beast has for me as well. Um, so you, you end up, uh, and I. And you so you end up with these situations in which it's it's would it be safe to say that basically it's a substantive contribution to the paper that is not simply someone doing their job, by yeah. which I mean not just facilitating, say, access to a collection. And certainly if someone, if you pay somebody for a service, the understanding is that that person is not necessarily entitled to be an author unless there's a pre-existing agreement. So so even though beta analytic has had a substantive contribution to many of our papers, we since we've sent beta analytic money for that substantive contribution, we're not obligated to stick them on the author list. Yeah, yeah, it's like the uh, microanalysts. So the when you go into like an SEM lab, you've got a there's usually a technician that's running the the electron microscope for you and they're providing you with interpretations and sort of contextualizing what it is you're looking at. Like I'm not a an SEM specialist, but I've used SEM. Um, but the 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 person who did that work is acknowledged in all these publications that re- that's related to that. And, and even though they actually took the photographs in the SEM, they do not they've declined authorship because it's like their job is they're the technician. This is what they do. They provide you with this information. So whereas it's all lined up with your sense of so oh, I was gonna say like a lot of times if you if you have a friend who does uh, you know zooarchaeology. And um, you ask them to um, uh, to to you know analyze a bunch of samples, and then that becomes an important part of your data set. But you're not paying them to do it. That might be a situation where it might be appropriate to include them as an author because they yeah. that that would be a substantive addition because they gave you a, a part of the data set that you really needed their expertise to to do. But that's usually something you would. I mean, my advice would be that's a thing. That's a conversation actually to have at the time that you're talking about doing the work together, yeah, uh, and exactly. what would they be comfortable with. Um, uh, and to add to uh, with the uh, Dave Black and uh, 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 Kevin McBride is actually quite similar. I, I published a, a paper with Kevin a couple of years ago in historical archaeology, and actually we're working on another paper together. And I had to sort of drag him kicking and screaming as a co-author, even though the paper is done entirely with like his data that he collected based on ideas that he originally formulated, like he's like, well, I didn't write the paper. And it's like, I, yeah, there, there's other ways to be a substantive uh, uh, a contributor to a paper that should get you an authorship. Uh, and, and so he's, uh, he's, he's agreed to do it, but like he would never have suggested it himself. So it's, um, uh, it's something to consider. The most important factor in authorship, of course, 
is having a last name initial that's early in the alphabet. That's really very important. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's so. Now we had no. a conversation about this, Gabe. We, we were talking with the uh, Gabe and I served together on a sort of kitty committee, yeah. trying to help uh, d- uh, come up with ethical guidelines for a professional organization recently, which was a very um, uh, enriching experience. Actually, I, I say that genuinely, and I'm not even joking around. It was really yeah, me too. Cool yeah. To get to work on that together and with some other uh, great people. Um, and uh, and my big job on that was was helping define some ethical questions around authorship and journal editing. And my sort of suggestion in that was that you should include a statement that explains authorship order. You know, why is so-and-so the first author? Is it simply because their name is first alphabetically or are they the primary author where they the person who did the most work? Um, so to have something maybe in, in your acknowledgements that explains, you know, the authors are alphabetical, but all authors are considered equal, you know, like that sort of thing. So there are ways to get creative about this to explain to the reader um, who the authors are, why they're ordered the way they are, who's in, who's out, because um, there are some gray areas in this. Yeah, so like the because the convention is that the first author is the person who did the bulk of it. Yeah, mm-hmm. and my understanding is that in the real the real sciences, typically the last author is the head honcho in the lab. So like, but it doesn't really come up in archaeology because we don't really function with these like eighty author papers very much. But so like, uh, Ken and I had a paper in CJA many years ago now. And it's Holyoke and Reinick. And the reason for that is that Ken did the bulk of the, the work on that. I was a sort of secondary person on that. And so when someone picks that up, they say, oh, well, I don't like this figure. Who should I yell at? They should default to Ken. And he initially has to, and then he has to, you know, pawn it off on me if the, if the figure. Yeah, Gabe's contribution was, as, uh, as he's done many times for me, is uh, uh, letting me see the forest for the trees at, uh, uh, you know, sort of pushing me ever so slightly towards, well, do, do you think maybe it's this? Yeah, yeah. This, like, you, could, you know, yeah. you could drop Ken, that word. Yeah, it's interesting that that Ken ends up with the fine oak table, but he starts just standing with a chainsaw somewhere in the woods, you know? <laughs> it's, it's, it's getting through that can be an adventure. So, okay, so so co-authorship. Um, the, uh, oh, I, I realized when I was thinking about this podcast that uh, almost all of my work has been co-authored. So I've done exactly one peer-reviewed paper that was alone, I've realized, and it has zero citations, which makes me think that I should probably continue <laughs> to work with people. Um, and Bill, would you care to tell us about the value of collaboration? I'm thinking there's an example here in which we had a collaborator. Uh, I was trying to figure out when I was looking at these show notes, I was like squares versus ovals, and then then it clued in. <laughs> I'll never live this down. I'll never live this down. So first of all, y'all need to understand that I got a C minus in geometry in high school. Okay. So that's the first thing that we need to know. Okay. So we all have strengths and we all have weaknesses and I know where mine are, uh, but not really. Bill's father is a, I believe a high school math teacher, right? No, he was a biology teacher. Biology teacher. Oh, sorry. Okay. Although he's much better at math than me. Yeah. uh, Yeah. If we want to give the sort of story of collaboration as it relates to this infamous American antiquity paper, quantitative dwelling scale analysis of domestic architecture and blah, 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 blah. Terrible title, which was definitely my idea. Uh, so, so I apologize. For that. The, the, the story behind that, as I mentioned earlier, uh, when I was writing my dissertation, I got a job 
good problem to have. I got offered a job, the job I currently have. Um, and I told them in the, my, my, my job interview that my dissertation was basically written and I had not written one word, not a single word. Data recovery was done analysis. I had all kinds of, but I didn't, hadn't written a, written a word of it. I lied out my teeth and you should do the same dear listener. Um, when it comes to a tenure track job, you do what you got to do. Uh, so, uh, so the I listener can't say that Ken is actually writing his dissertation during this podcast. That's how nervous <laughs> he is. I had to, uh, so I went, I went home after I was offered the job, celebrated briefly and then locked myself in a closet and began writing uh, and stayed there for several months uh and but but the i had one final hiccup which was i was supposed to be analyzing two sets of data from two different sites one of them from a great a great literature report from a crm report we were talking about earlier and um i lost that data let's just say that i no longer had access to that data quite suddenly so i reached deep into the well to try and come up with two new articles because i wrote an article style dissertation it was four articles linked together thematically uh, with an intro and a conclusion which is a newer way that you can write uh, dissertations which um is a i think a great way to do it in archaeology because we're a very journal article driven um discipline more so than books than manuscripts uh and i went deep into this well and one of the one of the fish that came out of the well was the cocktail napkin idea I had had with Gabe Reinick uh, years before at an SAA. This just literally was just like a, a half drunken chat about a phenomenon we had both observed about household size in the two different regions we happened to work in in the woodland period. Uh, and um, and so I, I I went to Gabe. I didn't have to call him or anything because we uh, were sharing. Or you had already graduated that. Point, oh, so I was gone. We actually said over a text message. Yeah, we had to I texted Gabe and I said, let already I'm, done the emergency dissertation. I was one yeah. step ahead of you. <laughs> I was panicking. And so I texted Gabe. I said, Hey, you remember that conversation we had? That promising paper idea we had a couple of years ago? Uh, how would you like to write that paper with me in the next three months? <laughs> uh, which included collecting all of the data. So that was the beginning of that. No, it didn't actually. It included you collecting all your data. Mine existed as an Excel sheet, just waiting for a comparative. That's true, which was very yeah. helpful because yeah. then we, that was a lot. I had to go. Yeah, it's true. I was starting from scratch, which involved a lot of gray literature searches. Most of that data came from old gray literature, some of which was a real pain in the the rear end uh watch my language on a on a on a you know an all ages yeah we, we don't have uh, the to, explicit tag on this one yeah to get to get a hold of some of this data was really hard and so that that first collaboration was frankly gabe saving me by um uh one of these two papers agreeing to uh to to dive into this paper and um uh we we and that's how it existed it was just gabe and i at the point that it was an article in my dissertation uh so it's been in the dissertation it's cited as co-authored between gabe and i um afterwards after the dissertation was done i went to start publishing these papers and at my defense brian jones god rest his soul wonderful man uh told me straight out uh, the former state archaeologist of connecticut told me hey this paper here that you wrote with gabe that's definitely your best paper in this dissertation you should try and publish that in a good journal and i thought he was crazy i was like no we that was like we pulled that out of our out of nowhere right it was just this ridiculous idea we threw together and he was absolutely right that was definitely the best paper in the dissertation so so gabe and i um started to put together to publish it um, in it, we had done some statistical analysis. And I say we, this was my fault. I was the one doing the statistical analysis. And, and it, it involved some very simple math, including, as the joke goes, um, calculating the area of some shapes 
Uh, and um, <laughs> these were these are we were calculating the area of wigwams based on post mold pattern. Uh, and you know, wigwams generally are roundish to ovalish, right? So usually pi has to get involved in that sort of a calculation. And I forgot about all of that. And so I had calculated the area of all of these wigwams as simply length by width, which of course is how you calculate the area of a square or a rectangle. Uh, and by the way, no one said a word about that. That is still in the dissertation. None of my committee members caught that error. Uh, so, so much for peer review. Uh, and uh, so, so we we realized this problem somewhere along the line. And Gabe said, "Listen, I've got this friend. She's a brilliant statistician uh, and archaeologist. Let's no, this, this, you're, you're missing a stage in the story, which is is there? Because fill it in, fill it in. Because we presented this at an ESAF meeting." Yes, we Where did. Amy and Amy was at this this ESAF meeting. I don't know and if the, I know this part. Is Amy the one who told us that this was a problem? Yeah, it, well, and at, uh, but not then. But at the Can Am party, she said, "Oh, that that was an interesting paper, but the stats those aren't really the statistical tests I would use." She had was like thinking about the other aspects of the stats. Yeah, yeah, and that, we, and that was when we said, "Oh, well, fantastic! Would you like to work on publishing with this with us?" And she said, "Sure." Yeah. And then maybe uh, three months later, when we're trying to finish the actual published version, I get this text from her like fairly late in the evening. And she <laughs> says, hey, I'm looking at the Excel chart that that you and Bill have. And uh, I'm wondering, do you think it's possible that Bill isn't really sure how to calculate the area of an oval? <laughs> <laughs> the answer is yes. I, I was said, so, I was panic writing. <laughs> yeah. And I said it's entirely possible. Is that a problem? And she said, no, it'll be it would be good because it means if we fix the Excel chart, the pattern will actually be more pronounced. But I feel a little weird just like texting him. I don't know him very well and being like, hey, do you know how to calculate the, the area of he, a circle? Of course, knew me very well and knew that I would think this was hilarious yeah. uh, and would be embarrassed about it for at least the next uh several years, which I have. Yeah. Uh, now it's on the public record. So Amy came in and uh, redid all our stats. And Gabe's right. It was, we joke about the ovals thing. That was actually a relatively minor thing. She actually did much more work than that um, on rerunning all the statistical analyses and creating box plots for us and really making beautiful figures, statistical figures. Uh, and at the end of it, we had a product that we thought was pretty good. And we said, you know, why don't we shoot for the moon on this and we'll try publishing it in a big journal first and it'll get rejected. And then we'll publish it in something smaller, um, maybe like AENA, um, uh, which is a great journal, but you know, we said, oh, so let's submit it to American antiquity. And uh, they gave us um, what's called a revise and resubmit, which is, which is a good thing. Actually, you might see that and think that's a bad thing, but a revise and resubmit is good. That means the journal has said, we'd like to publish this, but it needs things fixed. So go fix that stuff, resubmit it. Um, and then we'll we'll publish it. Um, and uh, and then we did that, and it was eventually published in American Antiquity. So for me, it went from um, uh, the, it, it, the that paper wouldn't have happened at all without the collaboration with Gabe from the very start because it was a collaborative idea. It was an idea that we came up together based on observations we had made in our separate regions that we wouldn't have known about looking at each other's regions. Um, so it was collaborative in that way, really, from the start. And then the addition of Amy onto the paper, which really took the paper from a, a, an interesting idea with some fun thoughts to something that was much more robust and like scientifically uh, backed and mathematically strong and had that 
that red thread, right? That linkage that really that really tied all the pieces together. Uh, and ultimately, I think without Amy, we would we probably would not have been able to get it published in such a good journal. Uh, yeah, so, a certain correctness to it. Yes, correct. <laughs> Instead of being was, wrong, I, it was. I remember. Right. <laughs> I remember. I remember going to Amy and saying, "Okay, she had redone the stats and redone my shapes and all these things." And I said, "So are the conclusions still correct?" And she was like, "Oh yeah, yeah, no, they were fine." Uh, like, and as Gabe said, they actually were a little bit more correct than we thought. So it was. Uh, we actually we got it was good. <laughs> so, yeah. The uh, um. So the listener can't see this, but Bill has just lit uh, just lit his traditional uh, last cigarette before bed. And um, and so so we should we should we should hit the hit the last question. Here. I, I, I was going to tell the listener that you had a tilt on towards uh, towards midnight that I thought uh, I thought could be indicative of uh, of the half empty bottle of Corvassier. Yeah, yeah. The the listener the listener doesn't know it's, it's almost one o'clock in the morning uh, in my office here. And if the listener has never been in my office, the real the real trick about being at my office at uh, one in the morning is that. At no hour of the day or night is this office have uh, does this office have a controllable temperature. So it's also <laughs> been at the beginning of the podcast. I turned on the heat because it was about uh, well, let's, let's do it in Kelvin because we're in two different countries. It was, <laughs> <laughs> but then, you know it was it was cold and now it's hot. <laughs> Don't know what's going on here. They um, but. Uh, all right. So just wanted to wrap what um, ethical questions do people need to consider before publication? I think particularly students, right? So we've got questions of co-authorship, which we covered, stakeholders, indigenous communities, human remains, mm. and then status of collections too, right? Publishing on privately held collections, maybe looted collections, these kinds of things. Yeah, we, we thought about a lot of those things in, in this recent uh, uh, conversation. Obviously, the first, the one we've probably been thinking about the longest maybe in archaeology is uh, representations of human remains, uh, particularly indigenous human remains, um, which is of, uh, you know, a higher ethical importance than many others because of the history of archaeology and so much of the history of uh, certainly American archaeology being based on uh, the, the mistreatment of um, indigenous bodies and ancestors uh, and remains. Um, and so in general, it's become uh, considered inappropriate to, to display human remains certainly without a tremendous amount of collaboration and uh, consultation before anything like that can be done, uh, certainly in photographs, but even in illustrations in some cases. So it makes it quite difficult to publish on those issues. Um, so if you want to um, uh, publish data on perhaps burials in some way, just know that um, yeah, you really, I think you just really need to be doing collaborative work on that from the start and, and having conversations with uh, community members as best as possible. Sometimes that's hard to do. Sometimes that's impossible to do, but oftentimes it's not. So uh, how can you bring in uh, community members from that, the appropriate communities uh, that, that, that those um, remains belong to uh, and, and get their opinions on how they would like those things talked about and integrate that into your conversation and maybe even include uh, folks as co-authors um, in, in those situations to that as a collaborative uh, authorship. That was one of the issues. You brought up several. <laughs> uh, status of collections. So looted, looted collections um, or uh, privately held collections. I think some of those would probably require like a disclaimer of some sort, basically mm -hmm. like uh, acknowledging, you know, the legal context. And, and you know, I, I like, I think more and more we have to kind of, um, the acknowledgements are becoming places where we contextualize 
the data that we're presenting, um, uh, more so than like thanking all the people that helped us along the way. Uh, you know, that these are becoming sort of important statements, like almost ethical statements that are embedded within. Um, and and I like Bill, you had mentioned um, sort of authorship statements. And I wonder if like this is sort of how journal writing might evolve is that you'll have an acknowledgments and then some sort of ethical statement that's sort of over and above that where you're talking about like, you know, the the management and and the production management and, and curation of the data, basically. Mm -hmm. um, I think that would be a reasonable thing to do, and it would be an interesting to actually include as a required thing or an optional one for authors to use if they feel like they have something that they would like to say or express that is important context for the data. So for instance, like, yeah, publishing on a, on a looted data set, there's ethical challenges with that, right? Does that encourage looting? Does that, uh, does that, does that um, um, somehow uh, glorify artifacts that were uh, obtained unethically? Uh, and and I don't know, I think that's a really complicated question to answer and probably needs to be answered on a case-by-case -case basis, but at least um, having some statement about that and the background of those artifacts is is probably probably a good idea in most cases. So that's something that you could probably talk about with the editor. I mean, you can you can bring that up to an editor as an author. Say, I'd, I'd like to include a, a statement that's actually separate from the acknowledgments that that speaks to some ethical concern within this paper and gives that proper context. Uh, and I, I think most editors would be would be willing to to include something like that. So, and there may be useful information in the style guide as well. So mm -hmm. you know, when you when you think about publishing somewhere, most journals have a have a style guide you can take a look at. Um, well, gentlemen, this was a pleasure. Uh, Bill has been our first ever guest on the New Brunswick Archaeology Podcast. We uh, are we all looking at uh, half finished bottles of Courvoisier and looking to get uh, get Bill to bed. I'm yeah, looking, we, we told Bill we do a cool forty five, and we just did three of them. So that's uh... <laughs> we really did talk for a long time, and I was late. The <laughs> yeah. listeners should know I was running late and got here uh, a good ten to fifteen minutes after our, our agreed upon start time. So part of this is my fault that we're going so late, and I and I and I, and I want to I want to make an author statement about my my my, uh, my guilt. <laughs> <laughs> the uh, well, I think. Um... It's a special episode, so we have no hit pieces except for this fine hit piece we are about to send to bed, Mr. Uh, Dr. Uh, Bill Farley. That's thanks very much, Bill. And check uh, yes, thanks, check out Bill. his work on uh, Archaeology Tube. And what is your what is your incredibly active Twitter, Bill? Yeah, my act my my Twitter handle is at Archaeology Game. So it's YouTube at Archaeology Tube, and uh, Twitter is at Archaeology Game. So Fantastic. check those out. And uh, and and they are they are uh, super interesting, and we hope that there will be a lucky winner who is getting to play Resident Evil Four and enjoy uh, and enjoy a nice Maybe. evening with Bill Farley in New Haven. And and you might even get Gabe and I to hop on for that one. I, oh, I wouldn't boy. mind demoing that one. We'll do oh, some mercenaries mode. Yeah, we can yeah. get that's it's a great. I mean, I am getting that game the day it comes out. Let's let's not pretend it's happening. <laughs> yeah, we, we 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 thought you might be. Thank you very much, Bill. And uh, we will bid the listener farewell. And Ken and I will talk to the listener in, it's not a fortnight this time. It'll be about seven days when we are back to talk about the maritime, late maritime archaic. Talk a to Demi fortnight. <laughs> a a demi fortnight is also the size bottle of this, uh, of this uh, predatorial Del Barbaresco 2017 <laughs> that Bill's going to provide. <laughs> We'll be right
Thank you.